Hey everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. 1964 edition. Everybody and welcome back, or welcome, I guess we're not back. This is the first episode to the Gilda Films podcast. Which picture was best? This is our second one that we've done for 2021. Um, pretty exciting. This is one of my favorites because it's uh, classic films. We are going to dive into the best picture nominees and the eventual winner. That was the year 1964. Ah, oh, I remember it well. I was there. Kennedy had just been killed. The world was a changing. The times were a changing, and ladies were being manhandled by men who tried to teach them how to speak English, and nannies were flying down from the sky. Yes, in a lucid, in a lucid dream I once had. Anyway, everybody's like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> Those are hints of what we'll be talking about. As always, hello to Brett. Hello, hello. And on the day that we are recording this, uh, tomorrow is actually his birthday, so happy birthday! Hey, thank you. You're welcome. So we both had birthdays on here because I had one with uh, mm-hmm. last year's episode. Now you have one. Yep. Yeah. And as our co-host today, we welcome back Toby. Hello, Toby. Hello, everyone. So I picked Toby. I picked Toby for this one because I knew he liked a couple of our nominees, and then he hasn't seen a couple of them. So yeah, he should have. Uh, Bring some good insight. We have a lot of references for these movies. This is an interesting year. Yeah. Have at it. it. Yeah. Well, you know, I I think, you know, there probably were a number of people in the 1960s who did think they saw flying nannies coming through the sky. Uh, It was an interesting time. But no, I I love the 60s. Like I, I, in both years for the 60s that we've covered so far, it, it was just a really cool time for movies and for filmmaking. I mean, cool stuff was being done. And that's certainly the case with some of these that we're going to cover today. Um, So yes, we are discussing the Oscars of 1964. They were the 37th Academy Awards held on April 5th, 1965. Uh, To run through the winners here, Best Picture, uh, My Fair Lady. This was actually Warner Brothers' first Best Picture winner since Casablanca. So you're talking about 21 years there um, without a Best Picture winner. So big for them best director george cukor definitely a legend he was the director of my fair lady best actress yet another legend uh julie andrews for mary poppins which was kind of a big deal i mean audrey hepburn who was in plays the lead role in my fair lady was not nominated and we will certainly get into why that was controversial christian you have a fact here that julie thanks jack warner at that year's golden globe awards what's the story behind that so jack warner uh, head of Warner Brothers and producer of My Fair Lady, which also fun fact there, that was like his first personal Oscar win too. Ooh. He produced obviously like a ton of their films, but that was like his personal win. But anyway, he made the, the, the decision not to cash Julie in the role of Eliza Doolittle based. I mean, there's rumors it's based on she didn't have the look. She wasn't bankable enough of a star. Yeah. Mm. So 
uh, and everybody thought she was going to get it, including Disney, which he said, I know he said somewhere that he would have saved Mary Poppins for her to do My Fair Lady. That didn't work out, obviously. But when she won the Golden Globe, she thanked Jack Warner for giving her the opportunity to not be in it and then win for something totally different. And if you watch the video, you can hear some people in the back are going, well, oh. <laughs> like, damn, the first shade at an award ceremony. That's amazing. I love yeah. it. Yeah, because uh, uh, yeah, Julie Andrews played the role on Broadway, right? Mm. Like that was Yeah, that was kind of like her role at the time. So that's really interesting. Uh, so best actor that year did go to the one from My Fair Lady, Rex Harrison. Uh, best supporting actress went to Lila, Lila Kadrova for Zorba the Greek. And best supporting actor went to Peter Ustinov for Top Copy, Top Cappy. I hope top I copy. It. Top copy. Okay. Oh my god, you said it right. Wow. I'm yeah. I'll take that. That's a win. Uh, so that yeah, that was the only one of those big winners between the director's picture and acting that did not come from a best picture nominee. Um, but my fair lady was was definitely the big winner of the night. It won eight awards, had the most wins. But in terms of Mer nominations, Mary Poppins was the big one there. Um, received thirteen, which is tied for the second most all time. Um. This was hosted by Bob Hope for the 14th time. Uh, yeah, one of the big kind of premier Oscar hosts there. Uh, this was pretty star-studded too. Judy Garland actually made an appearance um, and she sang a medley of Cole Porter songs because um, he had died earlier that year. Uh, famous composer there. And this was the first of only three times, um, the last time actually being last year, 2019, that more than two films received more than 10 nominations. Um, Cause you know, Mary Poppins at 13, I think my fair lady and Beckett both had like 12. So, um, and that's still the only time that three films received 12 or more. So they really kind of rocked the house with those. And the, for the first time, all four acting winners were not American. We had three British winners and one Russian. And this would not happen again until 2007, which we actually talked about um, that year as well and the actors from that year. So yeah, definitely some cool stuff happening this year. Um, some films that were definitely dominating the conversation with awards and nominations. And we are going to go into all of them, obviously, that were nominated for Best Picture that year. So what do y'all say? Are we ready to jump into this and begin? Let's do it. Perfect. So I've got our first film here. It is from director Peter Glenville, and it is Beckett. Um, so this is starring Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole, both of whom were nominated for Best Actor that year. This is a time when like, they believed it was okay to give two people Best you know, Actor nominations in the same film. What, what a concept. Um, but Peter O'Toole plays King Henry II of England, um, and it's a lot about his relationship with Thomas Beckett, who is kind of his right-hand man. Um, you know, King Henry II is a Norman and Thomas Beckett is a Saxon and the Normans kind of took over them um, in, you know, the William the Conqueror age hundreds of years ago. And so it's really interesting because historically, you know, these two groups are not, you know, they, they do not get along. But here you've got what is seemingly this friendship, but we do get the sense pretty immediately that King Henry is much more fond of it than Thomas Beckett is. Um, 
So yeah, Beckett kind of serves as King Henry II's confidant. He is, you know, the one that he kind of trusts with everything that he does and speaks to. Um, it does get complicated because Henry's, his wife and his mother both are not fond of this. They think he should kind of throw him away and becomes even more complicated when um, he names Thomas Beckett's, the title escapes me, like Archbishop um, or something Arch- like that. Archbishop of Canterbury. Yeah, there you go. So huge role. This is largely because King Henry II has had a big conflict between the church who refused to fund his military operations. And their relationship becomes really kind of challenged at this point because he thinks Beckett's going to go in and just do whatever he wants him to do. Whereas Beckett is like, no, I'm actually going to do what I think is right. Um, And, you know, kind of sides with the church on some of those things. But it's really interesting because the church doesn't want him there either. So Becca is in a really interesting position with that. And the film just kind of touches on what that does for their relationship and how they kind of interact after that. Um, I, I enjoyed this one um, probably a little more than I probably expected to. It's one of those like two and a half hour stuffy period dramas. And it is stuffy. I mean, like some of the dialogue is like not for me. Some of the characters are not for me and how they're kind of presented. So for me, it did take a while to really get going. I mean, it was over an hour, hour and a half in before I was really interested in what was happening. But I think once it gets to this point where it's really looking at the real conflict between these two characters and how they interact in those ways, it's really fascinating. I mean, the the narrative, the little things that are happening here and the way that they kind of work for and against each other and how each of them interacts with those things is pretty, really interesting. Um, Burton and O'Toole are both, uh, really, really strong here. I think it's really nice because they are both very different performances. It's not like one is trying to show the other up, you know, O'Toole is the more beefy showy performance. Burton is the more kind of introspective kind of subtle one, which actually makes it hard for me to choose which one I prefer more. I think they're both kind of on pretty equal playing field. Um, yeah, last thing I want to mention before I turn it over to you guys is that John Gilgood shows up here and he kind of steals the show for me when he appears. Um, he plays King Louis the Seventh of France. Um, and, you know, we've talked about him on Arthur. He was really good there as well. And here I think he he got a really deserving Best Supporting Actor nomination and shows up and does some cool things as well. So it's an interesting film. It does have some of those qualities of a period drama that don't always work for me, but it is shot very beautifully and has good performances. So it certainly does enough to justify watching it for sure. Yeah. Um, I liked it. I just want to preference my talk here with this is like the prequel, the spiritual prequel to a little film called the lion in winter. Yeah. I don't know how intentional it was to cast Peter O'Toole in that after he is playing Henry the second in this, but he plays Henry the second in that film as well, a little bit older performance. So it's really interesting to watch that and this and see such a total shift in age of him. Cause he's definitely an older mm-hmm. character in Lion and Winter. And here he's young, he's ambitious, he's rambunctious. Like you said, Brett, he's more of a, he's more of the wild character compared to uh, Burton, but I like them both. I think I prefer O'Toole better. Um, but yeah, I never knew what this was about. I thought it was just, right-hand man. I didn't think there was anything about putting uh, Beckett into this higher level of archbishop. And then from there, 
Henry ask for favors and Beckett's like, well, actually. So it's basically a betrayal. And then there's this whole sainthood situation that I read about afterwards. Yeah, where now he's a saint and I should have known that growing up with the saints in my life. But yeah, I like the movie. Um, I didn't love it as much as you did. I saw your rating or your rankings. So it hurt me a lot. I think we <laughs> but, gave it the same rating though. Like we, you gave it three and a half stars, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so that's how I give it. But yeah, yeah. it's a little higher um, up on my rankings. But also it's interesting to see that this is in an era where a lot of these historical British sort of costume dramas take place in. Because you have this and then next up you have A Man for All Seasons in mm -hmm. 66, which wins Best Picture. And I don't know. I mean, there's probably some more out there. I didn't think like Tom Jones the year before. But it's like the Oscars really enjoy these type of movies for the yeah. 60s. And especially at this time, because I always say that the year Kennedy was shot in 1963, then in 1964, this is when really times are changing in terms of your perspective of film and what audiences really like. And that's when you go into 66 where things get challenging and then 67, of course. But still, the people of the Oscars like these hoity-toity British costume dramas. And I get it, but also start phasing out of them. Or like this and then Lion in Winter, get these characters that are so interesting and so dynamic and so modern feeling that the movie is at least interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And I did like Burton in this too. I keep talking about O'Toole, but Burton was good too. I don't see much of Burton. Uh, I haven't seen much of his stuff other than uh, Virginia Woolf, but he acts the mm. same to me in like everything. He doesn't have the range. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, Toby, what do you think? I mean, I have to agree that it's it's very much a like a stuffier movie, but it definitely has um, like the acting is good. Peter O'Toole and Burton have like a good dynamic. It's it looks really good, you know. Of course, it does, but. Right. Have to agree about the you know the academy in the 60s it, if they definitely go through their phases and it definitely takes them a while to get through some phases i think you know what i mean like yeah but yeah like the 60s is musicals and british dramas and yeah you can definitely see that yeah it is really interesting to see those trends and like we, we've talked about lion in the winter in our very first episode and I really, I really like that one. In fact, I like that one more now than I did when we talked about it. Like, as I thought about it, it's just grown on me. I miss Catherine in this. Yeah, yeah. And you, you were talking about like Peter O'Toole and aging, which is really weird. It, it's, it's fascinating to compare the two performances because like while the character ages, O'Toole doesn't. You know, it's only four years later. So he's playing much older. And it, it's just impressive how he was able to really do two completely distinct performances of this character um which is really cool yeah i like uh toby said it looks good it does look good like the production design of this is really really nice and also i must say like the color palette of it it's not like the boring it's not like boring browns and grays and everything it's a little bit more vivid than that to me anyway yeah i agree it is very yes feeling color wise yeah I think that's part of the reason why I mentioned earlier, I really like the filmmaking of the sixties because they, that was something that showed up quite a bit. You know, the colors were really cool. And, and some of the films we're going to talk about later today as well. It's like when you have something that looks that good, even if you don't always like the movie, it's, it's nice to watch um, and to look at. So, 
it's also really interesting. This, um, I mean, I guess this is a good segue to talk about its Oscar wins and nominations, but it only won one Oscar adapted screenplay. And Christian, correct me if I'm wrong, but if it loses that, it is the biggest Oscar loser of all time because it would surpass the color purple, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, because color purple had 11, 11 I think. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. So yeah, this is like really close to being like the all-time Oscar loser, which, you know, take that as you will. I mean, color purple was the best movie of that year, so whatever but um there's a much better adapted screenplay winner for this year so exactly yeah in all honesty like maybe i don't know what this should have won i'm looking at um it was also nominated for picture director um like i said burton and o'toole both got actor gil good got supporting actor art direction costume design cinematography editing score and sound and when i think about all those like it's really good in all those areas but there's something better in all of them too so I mean, it also won the Golden Globe for drama. So, but that's again, that's the Hollywood Foreign Press. So, yeah, one of like this when you have like Mary Poppins and My Fair Lady being the big things. Those are obviously not dramas. Right. Right. Yeah, that's a good point too. Yeah, Beckett. Um, worth checking out. Period drama that you know ha- certainly has its qualities to it. Um. Any further thoughts or anything on that one that you want to discuss before we move on? Mm, I was just going to see what its box office draw was back in the 60s. Mm. Let me see here. I'm sure it'll tell me. Oh, okay. Like 9 million. Oh, okay. That's not too much. Yeah. We had a coworker actually who told us this is one of his favorite films. Really? Interesting. Then we watched it and I'm like, "Mm, okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the the top ten of the box office that year, and it, it didn't make that. But you've also got some some pretty big movies up there, some of which we'll we'll discuss here in a little bit. So, all right. So our next film is another one that I'll introduce. This was um, the Stanley Kubrick movie from this year. It is his satire, Doctor Strange Love, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, which is such a long title, but honestly, one of my favorite titles ever, especially in the context of the movie. Um, so this is a black and white movie from this year. Is it a, it is a cold war satire in which a, an army general, I think it's army, um, a general of some sort, um, who's played by Sterling Hayden pretty much loses it and gives an order, um, to go on a, a nuclear holocaust, basically, in Russia and send all his fighters to go and drop bombs in different points in Russia. And so once that is found out, um, that leads to a, a situation with another general who's played by George C. Scott and the president, who is one of Peter Sellers' three roles in this movie, um, sitting in this big war room, a big table of people, all these politicians and generals and whatnot, trying to figure out how they're going to stop this from happening. Because if you think about, you know, Cold War protocols and whatnot, once these soldiers got these orders, they were told, do not listen to anything, complete your mission, because it could be the Russians fooling with you, trying to trick you into turning around so they can just come and attack us. Um. So the president and is working with um, the the Russian ambassador. He's trying to work with the Russian premier. Um, Peter Sellers also plays 
Captain Mandrake, who is trying to like calm Hayden down and like get to the point of like get out of there so he can try to stop what is happening. He also plays the titular character, Dr. Strangelove, who is a like a German like physicist or something who actually worked under Hitler and has these like really weird quirks and is talking about this doomsday machine that Russia has. Um, which there's another kink of things because if, if Russia is bombed, their doomsday machine goes off and then the whole world is basically destroyed. Um, this is the second time I've seen this movie. I first watched it like almost eight years ago. So it had been a while. I was worried about whether it would hold up for me. And I'm, I'm happy to announce that it definitely did. I, I think this movie is pretty brilliant. I think Kubrick has obviously done some really great stuff, but this is something that feels a little bit different from him, largely because of, you know, the genre he's working with. I think this is like, when I think of movie satires, Dr. Strangelove is kind of where my mind goes, um, especially with the, the political things it's dealing with. It's poking fun at a lot of things that are happening right now, but also maintaining a kind of sense of, of scariness to it because it's almost like it makes you wonder like, could this really happen? Like, could this have happened? You know, some random general goes nuts and decides to set off, you know, nuclear war um, with the tensions that were so high at that time. But the characters are kind of ridiculous. Um, Dr. Strangelove is like a, a really interesting and funny character. I love the way Peter Sellers plays all three characters and each of them are definitely very distinct. Um, but Sterling Hayden, George C. Scott, I think the whole cast is pretty great here. Slim Pickens is hilarious. He has like kind of one of the most iconic scenes in the movie, which is great. You've got a young James Earl Jones in there. And I think they all do pretty good work. Um, so yeah, I mean, there are other stuff we can go into, but I want to turn it over to you all to see what you thought. Cause it sounded like this didn't hold up quite as well for you as it did for me. Yeah, I fluctuate with this one a lot. And I think for this time for me, it was the pacing of it. And I know it's only like a 90 minute movie, but it feels a little, it drags for me in places. Um, I do like the, I do like most of the scenes that when they're actually in the war room, that's yeah. like the best part of it. But I want to read from my review of this uh, from last year that I watched right as our pandemic was starting when I actually stopped working because I didn't know what the hell was happening. But, and I'm putting this in context of the one and only Jared Kushner, and this is a quote <laughs> from the movie, Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair mused, must, I, I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed tops. Yeah. yeah. So it does hit, if you watch it in the context of today without nuclear war, but in the presence of a pandemic and what we have gone through in the last year, it does hit very close to home. It is scary. It's a scary movie. I can picture it as a scary movie for the Cold War in 64. But I do really like it. I like Peter Sellers a lot in this. I love um, I love the strange love character, I think, the most. Because obviously, why not? It's, he's hilarious in that. But yeah, yeah, it's really good. And like you said, Sterling, Sterling Hayden's really good. Slim Pickens is incredible in this. That is such a brief role. But like you said, it is such an iconic ending to his character. Like there's posters of that, there's references, which I think Toby's pulled up some references on that, but yeah. But it's a good movie and I really like the dialogue in it too. So oh. it's, it's, a, it's a perfect film for Kubrick. It's quirky enough. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I definitely um, agree that it is like one of the most iconic satires because it's like, it's so universal. And like, when you watch it, 
you can really just, like you said, with the pandemic, and it just depends on what's going on, at, you know, in the world, you can really just like, it's uh, a movie that holds up well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I like the way that Kubrick kind of shoots the various characters, because like with Sterling Hayden, he's always kind of shot from like an up angle or mm-hmm. looking up, and it's, it's almost kind of creates that kind of like fearful demeanor for that character and like the way he he shoots the interaction between the president and dr strangelove because they are played by the same actor um i i just find that kind of funny and yeah christian you mentioned um the line that you 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 kind of connected to jared kushner um the one line that from this movie that i've always loved and I, i i think it's one of my favorite movie lines of all time is you know, I think it's I think it's the Russian ambassador and George C. Scott's, Scott's character are like going at it, and the president comes in and says, "Gentlemen, you can't fight here. This is the war room," and it, it, it encapsulates the movie for me because that kind of oxymoron there. And I agree, the war room itself is like an iconic piece of like set design, and that is I agree where the best scenes in the film happen. Um, I'm so mad. I just realized that that's what that means. You can't fight here. This is the war room. I get why yeah. that. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I, I seriously, that's not even a joke. I'm just figuring that out. That that's why that is a funny line. Like you can't fight here. This is the war room. <laughs> oh god, you learn something every day. In in some way, it, it's almost like so. It's almost cheap in a way, but it, it definitely works a number on me. Um, but yeah, the, the the George C. Scott character is interesting too because he is that one. I feel like in any movie like this or any conversation like this, there's that one person that's like, well, it's only this many deaths. And they're talking about like 10 to 20 million deaths. Um, and he kind of, he, he's kind of a funny way to portray that character. But I don't know, like this is one that I'm almost a bit surprised that this was so well received by the Academy um, and got that best picture nomination because aside from being a really well shot film um, and and whatnot and everything you had going on there, a really good director, good cast. We are not that far removed from things like the Cuban missile crisis. And you can't help but wonder how many voters were like, weren't catching the way that it was kind of poking fun at that, but also being serious at the same time. Um, but I'm glad, I'm glad it, you know, struck a chord with him and got nominated. So, um, this one did not have any wins, but it did get nominated for best picture director. Uh, Peter Sellers got nominated for actor and it did get in at adapted screenplay as well. I'm surprised it didn't get the, the production design. I am too. Yeah. Cinematography too. Yeah, because they were still split between color and black and white this year, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So that's really surprising. Also, it got AFI, your little quote, The War Room, is number 64. And on the 10th anniversary, this film ranks at number 39 as the best of all time. Oh, wow. That's quite a bit higher than I would picture. I mean, I love this film. I When I think in terms of like Kubrick himself, it's not my favorite Kubrick, but I mean, it's a five-star movie for me. I think he, he does some pretty terrific work here that in some ways is similar to what he's done, but in some ways is completely different too. So, Yeah, I, I agree. And now 
Toby uh, well, has some say, references. It has been referenced <laughs> in The Simpsons a couple times. There's that. Uh, there's like a famous couch gag where they ride down on the couch, like you know, like in the movie on the bomb. And there's also an, an episode. It's called a uh, Springfield or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Legalized Gambling. Um, supposedly, uh, the composer of Doctor Strangelove composed um, the title to this episode, and there's a couple of his songs in the episode. So. It's kind of an interesting, you know, The Simpsons ca- catches a lot of cultural things and it's interesting that, that it's in there a couple of times. Yeah, hmm. that's something else. That's interesting. Also, he was showing me earlier just um, also the references to Kennedy in this movie that were that will. So quotes in this that were referencing other things, but were deemed a little bit too inappropriate because of after Kennedy's assassination, one being Slim Pickens would have said something like, a fella could have a pretty good weekend in Dallas with all that stuff. Oh, God. Yes, and that was changed oh, to Vegas because as we know, Dallas is where Kennedy was shot. Yeah. yeah. And then Oof. I guess there's a famous pie fight scene, which you can find, I'm pretty sure, on the special features of any of the DVDs or Blu-rays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's like infamous enough. And I, I always wonder how that would work and how I would feel about this movie. Just like suddenly we're talking about war and then there's a pie fight scene. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We need to see that because I haven't, I've never seen it. I've only seen images from it. I haven't either. And I, this is one that I, I really want to get on the Criterion collection. I don't have the Blu-ray for that, but I'm sure it's on there. And right. I, yeah, that's one where like, I, I've thought about many times whether I would like the movie as much as if it did that. And I, I'm kind of glad they went the way they went because I think with the pie fight, that's like almost too far mm-hmm. on the satire comedy side. You know, it, it's a little less grounded, but I don't know. I haven't seen it. So maybe I'd feel differently after I did. But also I want to say that this ending, oh, I love this ending so much. And I don't know. I don't understand it. I don't get the context of it totally, but the ending song choice is it's one of my favorite endings of all time. And I always sing along. He knows this. I always sing along with this. <laughs> it's a little musical at the end of it. And yeah, it's it's hilarious. Yeah. Well, I will say, and this will come up in our honorable mentions in our next episode, but there's another movie from this year called Failsafe, which is directed by Sidney Lumet. Um, and if you want a nuclear war, pretty much the same plot, but very, very, very bleak and serious rather than comedic. That's a really good one to kind of double feature with this, um, which also has a really good ending, but very different tone to it. Um, They're both really interesting. So very nice. Any further thoughts on Dr. Strangelove before we move on to our next film? All right. Well, Christian, I believe you've got this one. So go ahead and take us away. All right. I should, damn, I should have wrote a song for this one. <laughs> but our next film and the, the true winner of 1964 in our hearts is that of Walt Disney's masterpiece, Mary Poppins. Who doesn't love Mary Poppins? And if you don't know the plot by now, my God, where have you been? But if you don't know it, here we go. So it is about a family, the Banks family, who live in London, and they are in need of a nanny. Their two children, Jane and Michael Banks, are little misfits, and they write their own letter of what would constitute for a perfect nanny for them. And in comes from 
the East, yes, Winds in the East, bring about Mary Poppins, who is sort of a magical nanny, I would say. She flies down, hence why I reference flying when we open this podcast episode. So she flies down and all the other nannies in line are whipped away and only she she remains. She becomes a children's nanny and she basically teaches them, I don't know, she teaches them fun, imagination, She's there to watch over them, but also she's there to teach the family a lesson, especially the father, Mr. Banks, to lighten up a little bit. And uh, they have fun. They meet with Dick Van Dyke, who plays a chimney sweep named Bert. And they go into one of the paintings in that he, uh, one of the, what is it? The chalk drawings, which again gives us the Walt Disney animation, which gives us a very beautiful scene that I love of Jolly Holiday and you get supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. So yeah, there's a lot of great songs in this. As we know, this is one of the best films of all time. Honestly, the songs are great. I'm sorry to P.L. Travers. I'm sorry to her. I read her book. Disney did a great job on this. I did not like that book. This is a miracle in filmmaking. Okay. So, but yeah. Mary Poppins, it's incredible. I think everything about it is beautiful. Julie Andrews as Mary Poppins is one of the best performances of all time. One of the best winners of this category of all time. Dick Van Dyke, he's controversial just because of the accent that he does, a Cockney accent. My God, he's so enjoyable in this. And then the the kids are great. I really love David Tomlinson as the father too. He gives a great performance in this and it's... I don't know. It is honestly one of the most magical films ever. And I'm glad that I discovered it at a later age because I don't know if I would have gotten it as a kid. I watched it when I was 10. I got it for Christmas and I was like, I was hooked on it for a year or so. And I still am. But yeah, you two have probably seen it. Actually, I, well, oh, the that's first right. time I ever watched Mary Poppins was just a few years ago. I had never watched it as a kid. I didn't grow up watching it. But I love it too. I mean, it's just, what did you say? Practically perfect in every way. Oh. yeah i uh you this is probably the longest period of time i've gone between a, a film that we've watched that i've watched before because i had not seen this since i was a kid um i don't know what age probably eight or nine or something but um yeah i i, I really enjoyed it back then and I was interested to see, you know, because it is one that certainly has a reputation of being one of those classics, one of those, you know, really good Disney films, one of the best to come from Disney. And I think it lives up to that. I, I was blown away by it. I, I can't believe how well this film holds up on a technical level. And obviously you, you could go into like you know, the character, but like as far as like what you're seeing on screen, this film is flat out fucking gorgeous i mean like it, it is just like every shot every scene it's almost like we talked about this a little bit with portrait of a lady on fire and this film does it differently but it is like every shot is a painting in a way um because it's beautiful the way it uses colors the way it centers the characters and it's not that it's exactly the same all the way through you know you got the scenes um in the chalk the, the chalk drawing that are a little different um you know where, where they go to visit um was it her uncle? Um, and it's my favorite um, sequence in the film, which is the step in time sequence. Um, Cause they're on the rooftops. You've got the sky in the background and you, the, the choreography, the dance number is just insanely good. It all works so well. Um, 
it's fun. This is like one if you want to have yes. a good time, just watch this. It's one of those movies that is is it's fun for a long time. Like it, it's it's like two hours and twenty minutes, and it's one that you know you I, you don't really want to end. It's enjoyable the entire way. Julie Andrews is like sometimes when I when I'm assessing a performance, so I I oftentimes get caught up in the technique. Like what are they doing? But with Julie Andrews, this is a masterclass in creating a character and bringing a character to life. She embodies Mary Poppins. She is Mary Poppins. And she's Mary Poppins is iconic. And she has an undeniable, humongous role in that. Um, so she's incredible. Dick Van Dyke, like you said, you you know, get into the accent and him playing that character and whatnot. But I, I he's awesome. He is it's like so fun. Song, it's like after this song, who cares about his accent? He just brings he brings another level of the excitement to it all too. Yeah, I, I think it's it's also it's part of why he's so lovable and he's a really fun character. It's impossible not to like him. And Dick Dick Van Dyke does really superb work here. I think he should have been nominated. I think David Tomlinson should have been nominated. He plays Mr. Banks here, and he does some really great stuff as well. One of my favorite shots in the movies is one of the more somber scenes where he's like walking through the dark and he's like walking to his place of employment and spoiler alert, you know, we know he's about to get fired and the shots of him in the dark are just superb. It's like something Roger Deakins would do, you know, and um, great movie. It, it's fun. It does cool things as some techniques and yeah, sorry to PL Trevor's like I said, I haven't read the book, but I've seen Saving Mr. Banks. Well, I'll give it that much. I don't know how accurate that is, but the movie is amazing. It is spectacular, and it's 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 a classic. And also, slow clap to the Sherman brothers, Richard and Robert Sherman, who created what I think is one of the best scores mm -hmm. in a film and some of the best songs in a musical, like ever. Yes. Yeah, yes. I have to agree about the songs. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I definitely agreed about um, Julie Andrews being Mary Poppins and that I'm really thinking about it. It's, it's kind of amazing how you, you, at the end of the movie, you know who Mary Poppins is and it's only one movie. It's not like some character that has like multiple books and you just know who Mary Poppins ends at the who Mary Poppins is at the end of the movie. And she's such a complex, for like a children's movie, she's such a complex character. I think she, um, She's strict, but she loves the kids. And you could you get that sense of she's trying to like hold back at the end, but she really wants to, she doesn't say goodbye, obviously, but you know, she wants, you almost get the sense that she wants to say goodbye because she's going to miss these kids, but she knows that her time is over. Like she, she's not needed anymore. That's so like, kind of, that's like such an important thing that she doesn't say goodbye because she knows that like she's taught them what they need to know to have that father lighten up a little bit, live life and enjoy his family. And they totally forget about her, which is fine. I mean, cause they're enjoying now their kite flying, something as simple as a kite flying in the air, you know? Also, I think um, now I'm also thinking about this. Mary Poppins is also great because as a kid, you're like, this is a magical movie. The kids are doing fun things. But then as an adult, you get more into like what their father feels. And like, yeah. that's what you see. like he gets it's him who's being transformed even just as much as the kids into like you know uh his free lifestyle and it's just great right that, you know. yeah 
that's how that's too from the like saving mr banks because i don't again i don't know how accurate that movie is but she emphasizes that mary comes to save him the father Mm -hmm. but if you actually watch this film with that context in your mind like what toby is saying here it makes sense it's that it's reality it's the father who needs the help it's not the kids the kids just need somebody to watch over them while their parents are busy right yeah yeah because the kids that that's what i don't I, when I was watching the movie as a kid, and I haven't seen it for some reason in my mind. I had this memory that like the kids were naughty and bad and that they needed her to like whip them and shit. But like the kids don't really change that much in the movie. I, I think that yeah, they're imaginative. They're, you know, fun and free right. and whatever. It's just, yeah. Right. It, it's, it's like a reminder, like they're kids. Like th- there's nothing wrong with them. The, the problem is that, no. you know, it, it is like you said, Christian and, and, and you as well, Toby, like that lesson comes to the father and it's like, what changes is not, you know, the, the kids and how they feel and what, how they act. The, the, the change is how the father interacts with them. And it's really emotional. Like it's, it, it's almost like you almost kind of get choked up in the end when he finally realizes that. And, um, you know, that, that's something we've seen since then in, in cinema, you know, in some of those father children relationships, but it's really special here to see it hit him and how Tomlinson kind of plays that off and whatnot too. Um, so this had a pretty marvelous showing at the Oscars. Christian, do you want to run through what this won and what it was nominated for? All right. So this won five Academy Awards, including actors for Julie Andrews, film editing, the score for the Sherman Brothers, visual effects, and best song for Chim Chim Cherie, which we don't understand how that is the only one of the songs to be nominated. Yeah, that's and wild. It, and how it is this one that is the winner. Yeah, what would you pick? I, I guess like what what would if you had to choose? I don't know how to choose. Like they're all like pretty yeah. marvelous. So I, I think Feed the Birds is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't feel like the same songs as the other ones. So I think like I would signal that one out. Yeah, yeah. And so this is also nominated for eight additional Academy Awards: Picture, Director for Robert Stevenson, Adapted Screenplay, which it honestly should have won. Yeah. Art direction, cinematography, costumes, the adaptation or treatment of a score, which I don't know. What, their score category has been so weird over They're the weird. And best sound. Yeah. We're going to get into personal awards next round, but I think on top of the major awards, the the all the technical awards, everything that's listed here, the costumes, you know, cinematography, it's it's among the best, if not the best of the year in every single one of those. So it, it's really impressive for a film to be as complete and together as this one is. It would have been interesting too to have a winner. I'm trying to think back. Yeah, to have a winner that is a, aimed at children more so than anything, mm. you know? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Right. Oh, well, no, because no, Wizard of Oz didn't win. No. I mean, this has probably come the closest. Yeah. I mean, you think this and maybe Beauty Hugo. and the Beast. Yeah, Hugo. Yeah. Yeah. The, Hugo. Any of the animated ones that were nominated. But right. The one that came closest, I would guess, you know. Yeah. One five, and it was nominated for so many things and technical awards. And... Yeah. Right. It almost makes you wonder, well, I guess not because My Fair Lady was winning left and right too, but if you think about like, 
the fact that, you know, the lead actress here was nominated and won and the one for My Fair Lady didn't. It almost makes you wonder if you're watching that ceremony, if you think maybe Mary Poppins is going to pull this off. But right. Um, also, as we all know, this has a sequel to it. Yeah. Which, and, which some of us enjoy. It's good. I, I like it. I, obviously, I, I think it's a far shot from this one, but um, it's good, too. Also, it has a, a musical to it, like a Broadway musical. That makes that sense. Popular. And I saw a production of it, and Mary, the, they put her on a, some rope, and they flung her into the air. <laughs> and it was like the musical was ending, and she's still flying. It's kind of cool how many like iconic either shots or, or films or scenes we have from this lineup. Obviously, Mary Poppins. We talked about some of the stuff in Dr. Strangelove. You, I don't know, Mary or My Fair Lady might be up there too in some ways, but yeah, it's like, like Mary Poppins has probably been referenced in like almost everything, like a nanny who comes and saves the kids or the parents or yeah, it's probably just, yeah, so many times. Yeah. Speaking of references, I have a Golden Girls reference. Yes. So let's see the other one. I don't know. I This is bad to say, but I don't know the context of this, but I do know that the quote is from Blanche and she's talking to Rose, but Rose must have said something nice. And Blanche says, must you always be so cheerful, you empty-headed Mary Poppins knockoff? <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. It was so funny for me watching this because I, even though I hadn't seen it in 15 plus years, there were so many things that like, I remembered so easily and that I things that have just stuck with me through that time, even though I haven't seen it in that period. Um, so it's kind of cool in that way as well, especially the songs, obviously, but. Oh, and since I guess we still do have uh, people at home streaming movies, you can find Dr. Strangelove on the Criterion channel and Mary Poppins, of course, Disney plus. Yes. Very nice. All right. Any further thoughts on Mary Poppins before our next film? It is just, oh, it's incredible. Again, sorry to peel Travers, honey. But... <laughs> also, oh, I want to say this. In her book, there's an entire scene with talking animals. So how else were they going to portray talking animals if not animated from Disney? We even yeah. have animatronics because that would have taken a lot more time and money. Interesting. P.L. No. Travers is going to haunt me from the grave. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our next film, our last one before our Best Picture winner is we we always have one i think all three of us are just like now um and, and i i'm pretty sure this is the film from this year it is zorba the greek um so this is the story zorba the greek is actually you know he's a main character he's a lead but he's not the main character that is actually um god what's his name basil who is played by alan bates he is um he's like an english writer and he I, he like inherits some land on Crete in um, in Greece, obviously. And so he goes there to set up this mill. Um, and along the way, he runs into Alexis Zorba, who is kind of just kind of uh, this interesting, exuberant character who you kind of get the feeling like he he's seen some stuff. He's done some stuff, but we don't really know what that is. We don't get a whole lot of background on him. And he finds out that, 
you know, what Basil's doing. And he says, Hey, I'll go along. I'll join you. I know how to do this stuff and I can help you out. And so they kind of strike, strike up a friendship and the mill that they operate is, um, in this kind of small village in Crete where you have a kind of a, in a large group of characters. And there are some interesting situations that arise because of that, particularly in regards to like love and jealousy and things like that. Um, Basil, strikes up a relationship with a widow who's played by Irene Pappas. Um, and that's kind of a, a big deal because she is actually, you know, tied to another man. And so that creates some issues with the village there. Um, and they end up housing with this woman um, named Madame Hortense, who is played by Lila Kadrova. And she kind of lives in like this hotel. She has some like, you know, kind of wealthy possessions and whatnot. Um, she's older. Alexis Zorba, who's played by Anthony Quinn, kind of fake romances her. Um, and so she believes they're in love and he's kind of like, nah, nah, I'm just kind of playing around, you know, she's kind of a dick in that way. Um, it's a really hard film to describe because there's not a whole lot going on here. And I mean, you know me, I like some films that are kind of light on plot and just focus on like characters and dialogue, but this isn't really one of those. It's not like a, it's not like a talkie film, like, like something like the before trilogy where we're really getting in deep with these characters. Um, I think the film really struggles because like I said, Zorba is a main character, but the bigger lead is Basil and Basil is not interesting at all. Like I don't have any type of emotion for this character. I think he is so wooden and dull and there's just, I, 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 you don't, it's impossible to care about it. Like, I don't, I don't see how anybody could really make that connection. What I will say, I think Anthony Quinn is excellent in this role. I think he is like the highlight of the movie. I think he makes the movie watchable. I think even though the character is not always well-written and the story is not really there, I think Anthony Quinn does an excellent job in like, creating someone who is kind of gregarious and exuberant and whatnot. I think Lila Kadrova is really good too. I think her, she has a scene that's actually pretty emotional that I think is the high point of the movie and actually did kind of make me feel something. But overall, I think the movie is just way too long. It's kind of dull. It has a few moments. Like there's, there's like one shocking moment with the widow. That's pretty effective. The scene with Lila Kadrova. But overall, I'm here for the Anthony Quinn performance. That might be controversial, but I think he's he does what he can with something that is not very good and is definitely the standout in a movie that otherwise would have been, is not good anyway, but would have been really, really terrible if it was a lesser performance. Well, shit. Um, <laughs> I don't remember much of this, okay? <laughs> yeah, the, the scene... Uh that you're talking about with Lila Cordova when she passes away and they all just like ransack the house. Hey, yeah, that's pretty sad. The best scene of this movie is the ending and not because the credits roll, but because they do the famous Zorba dance, yeah. which I had no idea that, I mean, it, it's already a, a Greek inspired dance, but then I guess this film really capitalized on it pretty well. And now it's called the Zorba dance or commonly known as. Wasn't it in like movie, wasn't it? Like the yeah yeah yeah, and it's like in my big fat greek wedding Oh, okay and it's in the episodes of the full house where the greek family comes to visit so it's pretty it's culturally referenced in a lot of things but it's commonly known as the zorba dance um yeah i mean it's fine i don't i don't even know if it's fine i don't care about it enough 
right? I mean, I think wasn't Lila. I think her win is pretty decent. I mean, that's really all I have to say about it, too. I mean, I, I like you said, Brett. I I like movies that don't really do much, and you get to like see the performances and stuff. But this, I just don't have much to. Yeah. There's nothing there that I can really care about. It feels like I, I was struggling to find what the film was pinning down. Like yeah. what what do you want us to think of? What do you want us to care? Is it the the relationships? Is it the friendship between the two? I it, it's almost like it, it's trying all these different things and none of them are really that complex, but it doesn't go deep in any of them. And yeah, I mean the the ending scene, the Zorba dance is really good. It, it it's good. I think like it, it it almost worked less for me just because I've seen another round recently. And I think the ending dance scene in that is like much better. Obviously I, it's more modern. So, okay. Yeah. Come on. Mads Mikkelsen. He's, he's the guy, but, um, I guess all you have to do is dance at the end of a movie and I'll care about it. That. Yeah. I mean, throw it in and at least you've got something there. I don't know. Technically it's not anything special either. I mean, it's another one that's in black and white, um, I mean, this is one that, yeah, it, it, it won black and white cinematography and I'm like, really? Over something like Dr. Strangelove. Uh, okay. What, what did it also win though? It won supporting actress for Lila Kadrova. Um, it also won art direction, which is another one that's like, uh, that's the one that I'm mad about. Cause it's yeah. like, why is this winning art direction when Dr. Strangelove literally created a secret war room Yeah, and other various sets? And like this is probably filming just old, empty, dilapidated buildings on Crete. Right. Uh, it was obviously nominated for Best Picture, Best Director. Anthony Quinn got in for Actor and Adapted Screenplay. So I mean, seven noms and it won three of them. It did pretty good for itself. So I don't, I don't know what they were really loving about this. Um, they must like Greek movies at this time because a few years earlier. Uh, their best song winner is called Never on a Sunday. And it's one of like only two that are that is in a, a different language because it was in Greek. Oh, yeah. So maybe they just had a Greek thing. I'm having a Greek thing right now because I'm in the mood for some euros. <laughs> <laughs> Same. It was also funny. I don't know if you noticed in the in the like the um, opening titles, like when they're listening to the cast, they also say the people of Crete. And I was like, oh gosh, this is where is this gonna go? Um actually cultural ref there's like a lot of references in all these things, but for this one, a lot of restaurants are now called like Zorba the Greek. Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of restaurants oh. that you know, Euro restaurants anyway. Wow. Yeah, well, there's a restaurant in the Simpsons, it's also called Zorba the Greek. Interesting. It's funny. Yeah, that's, I guess it's largely a cultural thing. I, I don't know. The director, is the director Greek as well? Let's see where he's Michael from. Yes, was a Greek yep. Cypriot filmmaker. Yeah. He also directed the musical version of Zorba. Oh. That's interesting. I've heard that it's about the same in terms of its plot structure. But the mm. opening song to Zorba, the musical, is very good. Yeah, you did send me that. Oh, never mind. Yeah, Michael Cassianus, uh, Kakianus. I'm not sure how to pronounce that, but yeah, that's the director. Yeah, I mean, 
I don't know. I, I just don't think there's much here. I, I think it's just way too long for its own good. I mean, maybe if you like really pin in on some of these plot points it's trying to come up with and make it like 90 minutes long, it's certainly better. I don't know if it'd be good, but I don't know. It's definitely the weak link of the nominees this year. Right. All right. So let's move on to our best picture winner. Christian, you've got this one. So go ahead and take us away. Indeed. So our next, well, actually our best picture winner, here we go. And the Oscar goes to My Fair Lady, the second of four best picture winners of the 60s that were musicals. Yeah, four. Mm. So uh, this is, uh, it's a musical, like I said, and it is based upon the Broadway stage play of the same name and adapted from Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw. So it is about Eliza Doolittle, who is a common flower girl in London. She's a very thick Cockney accent and she is taken in, well, she's found by Professor Henry Higgins, who's a, like a linguist and he's played by Rex Harrison. She uh, comes to him after he said that I could probably make you a, a lady and get rid of this accent, make you very sophisticated and put you into society. So she comes to him, that challenge is all set up. He does so, and he pretty much struts her around town, introducing her to new people to see if she can really hold up to be a My Fair Lady. And in the process, also treating her like dirt still. It's very hard to watch these days. Um, I still really like this film. But Audrey Hepburn is Eliza Doolittle. She is very good. It is very controversial in her casting and what happened there, which we'll touch upon here in a second. But yeah, it's a. It's also commonly known as the perfect musical. I don't know why exactly. That's very objective because you could say pretty much anything's a perfect musical if you're a fan of it. But it's good. And also there's uh, some subplots here, especially with Eliza's father, played by Stanley Holloway, who got an Oscar nomination as well. And his trying to benefit off of her and then trying to become a gentleman himself and another subplot with a, a romance for Eliza, but there's a lot going on in this. It is a, a three hour musical. It is actually one of three music movie musicals that is considered complete as in there's nothing omitted in terms of mm -hmm. dialogue or songs. There's even dialogue added to it, but yeah, that is my fair lady. The big winner of that night. Uh, I think it was the second in terms of box office, super popular. Yeah. One of the most highly anticipated films up to that point. I mean, there was probably some in like the fifties, there's one pretty much every decade, but up to this point, Jack Warner really pushed this as one of the most anticipated of all time. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I really like My Fair Lady as well, but I would like to point out that I kind of, I feel like I feel different about this movie every time I watch it. And I think it depends on how I'm feeling. Like sometimes it feels longer than others. Sometimes it, it feels not as good as others. Like this time when we watched it last time, I really liked it. Um, but the time before that, it felt like four hours instead of three hours. It's just, it depends. You have to be really in the mood to watch a movie like this, I think. Mm -hmm. But I, um, the costumes are really great in this. Uh, it's a, also a really nice looking movie. I do feel like it's not as like nice looking as like Mary Poppins. The production design is a little iffy at times. It's a little bit like- It's too stagey. It's too stagey. Yeah. Like you can definitely tell yeah. it's like not, um, it's a stage, you can tell that. But 
I really like it. Yeah. So I, yeah, this, this might, in terms of like ratings, this might be like the, the furthest you and I have been apart on a best picture winner, but I, it's, it's one that I agree with a lot of what you said on like the, the visual aspects, Toby, like it is at times stagey, but also like very beautiful, um, good cinematography that the colors, like we've discussed the costumes, that hat, that is a big hat. Um, but, um, and then, yeah, they're good performances too. You know, Rex Harrison winning the Oscar for this. I think he does really good work. Um, you mentioned Stanley Holloway as well. And Audrey Hepburn was, you know, one of the big stars at this time. I just, I, I really struggle with like getting into stories like this, particularly all the adaptations of the Pygmalion story, just cause I like stories about high society don't really often connect with me unless it's like it's, it's you know the critiques are there or it's something pretty profound and I, that's kind of there here but it's also like i think there are some things here that just you've got a three-hour movie and some of it just didn't feel fleshed out the way it needed to for me like some stuff just happens really suddenly like they're working together they're having all these hardships trying to get her to to drop this cockney accent and all of a sudden it's gone you know and like um things with like the the romance with the the freddy guy it's almost like he just shows up and then he has a couple singing scenes and then he's gone and he shows up and he literally sings i'm on the street where you live yeah i don't you know it's like i i don't even like i'm like why is this guy here like i i don't know i and you know maybe it's just so that someone like can love her and that there are options she has for a lover and whatnot but could have been fleshed out a little more the scene, I really like Stanley Holloway and his performance, but the whole get me to the church scene just felt like way too dragged out for me. And it felt so like antithetical to what I was here to watch with the plot and what was going on with between her and Rex Harrison. And, and of course, spoiler alert, she goes back to him in the end. I'm just like, why? Like, I, I have not been convinced of why this should be the case. And so, or, or does she? She does enough. The fact that she's even there. Because like, who wants to hear my theory? Go for it. Go. My for it. theory is that she is there. She's looking all like, I've come back for you because I really love you. Wrong. I think she's back there to get the rest of her shit and leave. Could be. Could I think be. that she's playing with him. It's like, oh, uh, come to wash my face and hands before I come all did. And then he's like, well, get my slippers. Well, get your own damn slippers. I'm leaving. I don't want to believe that they end up together because in, I, yeah. I think in Pygmalion, they don't end up together. But when you have to adapt mm. this to Broadway, you have to make it happy, but you don't sure. have to make it happy. Yeah. I, I um, cause I'm reading uh, Pygmalion ends with her telling him that he should do his own errands and she leaves. So it's like, why make that change? And with the whole, what's his name? The character that appears in the one scene and sings the I'm out on the street where you live. Freddie. Oh, Freddie. Freddie. That she ends up with Freddie. And mm. that is the very weird point in the movie where it's like, why have Freddie at all? Right. I like she it's a very weirdly structured movie at times. I think that if she were to have done that and just tell him to do whatever and then leaves, I think he'd be fine with it. H- Henry, that is. I think he'd mm. be fine with it. He'd be like, huh, eh, all right, good for yeah. her. Right. 
Like, I've grown accustomed to her face, yeah, but mm, do I need her in my life, really? Because he sings how many times about being a fine single person. He doesn't need <laughs> a woman in his life. And then all of a sudden, for yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's it's one of those things where, like, it's like, I don't know. Like I said earlier, it's one that even though I, I do have a lot of issues with it, just with, like, the narrative structure and, you know, some of the characters at times. But, like I said earlier... It's nice to watch. It looks really good. And, you know, it's, it does have some scenes that really work too. I really love the scene where they're at, they're at the races and you've got all the high society people like doing the exact same thing. Like they all raise their binoculars and the horses run by and they all lower. And like, that's kind of a fun little poking fun at them and whatnot. Um, but I know I wanted more time to see Eliza build up that, relationship if not with henry then with everybody else in the house because when yeah. she leaves it's like oh my gosh she's gone and we loved her so and it's like i didn't really get to see where you got to that point right um so some of that i could use a little more of too but also eliza's such an interesting performance in this because she's a lead but she feels more at times supporting yeah to him you know right She's just the catalyst. She's the titular role, but she's not at the real forefront of it all. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting to think about the fact that um, you know, Audrey Hepburn was not nominated for this. I, I've seen some reasons for that, one of which you know some people might think is because her singing was dubbed by Marnie Nixon. Um, but also, like you mentioned earlier, the whole controversy between Julie Andrews not playing this role, even though she had pretty much you know, dominated it on Broadway. Um, it's kind of interesting to think about Audrey Hepburn being snubbed here because it is weird. I mean, this is a movie that did extremely well at the Oscars. I mean, one of the, probably one of the best Oscar performances of all time. Um, obviously there have been better, but it's up there. And your, your big star, Audrey Hepburn, former Oscar winner, had multiple nominations at this point, doesn't get in. Yeah, it does seem weird the bitterness <laughs> Christian do you want to go over what this won and what it was nominated for yes um, so it won eight eight Academy Awards including picture director for George Cukor which is kind of interesting that he hadn't won anything up until this point and this is his only win because he's like he's a very well-known director very powerful in terms of how he presents women on screen mm -hmm. uh, favorite of Catherine Hepburn um, Rex Harrison won actor, which also his performance is actually one of my favorite acting performances. And I think because nobody else can do this quite like him. Mm. And every time I hear a different version of any of the songs from Higgins, from any different revivals and they sing it, it'll make sense. You have to talk through these songs. <laughs> um, art direction, cinematography, costume designs, the adaptation or treatment score and sound. And it was nominated for supporting actor for Stanley Holloway, Supporting actress for Gladys Cooper, who plays uh, Higgins' mother, very brief role, mm -hmm. and film editing. Yeah, it's almost like a obviously she didn't win, but that's almost like a Beatrice Strait situation. Right. She's not in very much of the movie. It's really long. So she doesn't do much either. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I will say I can I, I I can easily see why this won Best Picture. I think it makes total sense that it was a Best Picture winner. Um, but like I said, it is it is a 
the way the songs exist in the movie and especially like Rex Harrison songs, it is very different from something like Mary Poppins um, with the songs and whatnot. So. Which is your favorite song in this? Yes. Uh, I don't know. Give me a minute. I have to look through the whole track list and recall. I've I've grown accustomed to her face. I do like that one. Yeah. Is that your favorite? Yes. Yeah. I really like this. And I mean, obviously the songs in Mary Poppins are way better, but none of the songs in this are one you like want to listen to every day kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, but I have to agree that Rex Harrison, he's pretty great in this. I like the way he, his talk singing. Yes. Yeah. I, I do agree with that as well. References time. Um, show me. I like show me. I was, I mean, granted it was uh, in a scene that I don't think really like has a place in the movie, but I did like that as kind of the way it connects to her character is like her finally kind of being like, I hear all this stuff, like show me what you mean. So the song itself, I really like. So. Hmm. And Max Lady is obviously like a big reference point for a lot of things as well. I think of like, there's like this Simpsons episode. I think of that family guy episode. Right, Stewie. Oh yeah, yeah. Based on, isn't he based on? Yeah, Stewie is based on uh, Rex Harrison in this. Really? Yeah. <laughs> you didn't know that? No, I didn't know that. No. Yeah, and like, like he was saying, there's a whole episode where he tries to teach a little baby girl how to be a proper lady too. It's like if you don't know oh. this, you still kind of know the plot of it because it's right. been done so many times. I mean, there's yeah. like there's remakes where. Uh, I mean, it's a, the big Malian story of transforming somebody from common person to sophisticated person. Yeah. It's, a, yeah, it's in a lot of movies and TV shows just as it is. But right. Stewie being the, I think the biggest one since his performance is based on Rex Harrison. In the song, in it, it's like um, based on which one? Oh, The Rain in Spain? Yeah, it's mm. the life of the wife is ended by the knife. <laughs> That's funny. That's an interesting factoid. I didn't yeah. know that about Stewie. And I have a Golden Girls one. Oh, okay. Let's hear it. In the page. All right. So, all right. So Blanche basically is talking about having an affair with a handsome foreign exchange student, Jean-Pierre. And uh, she, where is it? Let's see. She just basically tries to get him jealous by meeting other people okay he would spy on me in my classes he'd follow me home from school some nights he would even shimmy up the oak tree outside my bedroom door just to hope to catch me in the act what act second act of my fair lady oh my god that's uh, good could you imagine I, just like blanche in the second act of my fair lady in her <laughs> room? i did see you know in the place you know you kind of mentioned this was some people like say this is the perfect musical it was on the afi greatest movie musicals list at eighth um it was on their their big overall list at first but in the 2007 update it was dropped along with quite a few other films like 15 or 20 films there that were dropped on the second list so i think it was like yeah it was 91 on the first one so yeah, my friend, it is definitely, I think it's a good example of a really big movie musical type of adaptation, especially in this period of Hollywood. So even if, even with my issues with it, I, it's one that I, 
I like watching and it's still worth checking out. So any further thoughts on that before we go on to our ranking of these nominees? Oh, it's good. Oh, well, okay. But I don't know when this episode will come out, but TCM is doing this film as part of their uh, redefining the films. And yes. yeah, in terms of, I guess, the feminism in this. And like I said, how Henry is just an asshole to her. Interesting. There's only one moment where he's not an asshole to her. And that is when they're going to the, the ball and he walks out and he's like, you know what? I'm going to take her by the hand. And let's go. And that's like, <laughs> it. yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. It's interesting. It's an interesting dynamic that I, I think it's, it's obviously part of the point of the movie, but it's interesting. All right. So let's go ahead and dive into our ranking of these five movies. Toby, would you like to take us away starting at number five? Number five would be Zorba. Number four, Beckett. Three, Strange Love. Two, My Fair Lady. And the best, my uh, Mary Poppins. My Mary Poppins. My Mary Poppins. <laughs> She's mine. All right, Christian, what about you? Um, Same as Toby, with Zorba being oh, like yeah. Beckett, Strange Love, Fair Lady, and My Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> Because honestly, if you can take that book and turn it into something amazing. Makes sense. All right. Well, I'm the one who has to be different this time. And number five, I do still have Zorba, the Greek. Number four, I have My Fair Lady. Shocker. Mm. Number three, I have Beckett. Number two, Dr. Strangelove. And number one, we agree, Mary Poppins. Uh, so yeah, this is one where... I think we're a little different. I, I don't know if you all would say the Academy got it wrong necessarily, but I think we all agree that Mary Poppins would have been without a doubt, the most deserving winner. Yes. Yeah. It would have been a unique winner to say yes. the least. Too. Yeah. Also it would have been unique in terms of, I mean, my fair lady musical. Yes. But you're coming off of West side story, which at the time was considered mm -hmm. a more modernized musical where my fair lady is a classy old fashioned musical, you know? Yeah. Right. That's a good point. Um, so our overall ranking, which Toby did, which Toby actually did during this episode, because I was awful and forgot to put my My Fair Lady ranking in till late. Um, but in last place, obviously, we have Zorba the Greek. Next would be Beckett. And then we have a tie in second place for My Fair Lady and Dr. Strangelove. So we kind of offset those ones. And of course, number one is Mary Poppins. So my fair Mary, my fair. <laughs> perfect. Well, yes, we got, yeah, five films here that were fun to check out and, um, a few great ones in there as well. As always, um, you know, thanks for, to those of you who listen and, um, who recommend this and tune in each time we do one of these, we really appreciate it. Feel free to rate, review, subscribe on Apple podcasts, wherever you listen, um, you know, five-star rating and getting it out there certainly helps us a lot. Follow us, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, Letterboxd, as well as gildedfilms.com. And um, thank you again to Joshua Arnoldi for doing our theme music for every episode. And coming up next, obviously, we will be doing what we typically do. We will have a 1964 year in review. We each picked two more films. Um, for each of us to go ahead and review then. Of course, we'll have honorable mentions and personal awards. We've got two more musicals with that one. So we're talking about four musicals from this year, which is pretty cool as well. So be on the lookout for that. Um, that'll be out in a few weeks. 
Uh, Toby, thanks once again for joining us and looking forward to having you back next time. Any final thoughts from you? Nope. I'm looking forward to talking about the other movies. Perfect. And Christian, any final thoughts from you? Uh, no, I'm excited. I like, I like this year cause there's a lot of classic movies that I've been watching and we've been watching a lot of, uh, ones that we haven't seen before. Nice. And introducing him to some stuff too. So. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thanks again for listening and be sure to tune in next time. Bye.